0: happening now? We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today.
1: I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Lisa Poleski and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Will Weber is on the board. Isn't thinking you can get everybody vaccinated as wacky as thinking? No
2: one should think about it. Scott Mm. Thompson. Mm.
0: Mm. That's a good point. All right. Remember the COVID-19 app still work? Is it any sense in having this on your phone? Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. He is with us now. Carmi, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
3: Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, it's quite a day. It's great to talk about something then, uh, you know, other than what else we're talking about. But this is sort of COVID related, so maybe pulling us back in. What about the app? Is it still needed? How successful was this?
3: Uh, you know, I, I'd like to say that it, you know, it did the job that it was supposed to. But the reality is, it didn't. Not enough of us did downloaded it um you know it wasn't a sustained effort i think the government assumed when they launched it that everybody would just jump on board the canadians would do the right thing and just say hey this is a simple thing that i can do to contribute to the cause to end the pandemic sooner than it would otherwise be the case And that every Canadian would just buy into it because most of us had smartphones. The reality is, less than seven million of us downloaded it, and I'm sure a great majority of those have basically let it gather dust since then. I know I have. Uh, Every once in a while, it kicks out an error message or a message saying, "You know, we continue to track on your behalf," and then we run and look for it, but it and 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 then it. Goes back to three screens deep on our phones, and we ignore it again for a few months. And so, I don't think it's lived up to its potential. I don't think any of us are consciously using it as one of the tools in our pandemic toolkit. And I think it represents something of a missed opportunity in that the government launched it and then basically left it. Didn't sustain the messaging around it. Didn't continually remind us that hey, we you know we gave you this free app, keep using it because you know it'll help. They they essentially went radio silent, and here we are almost eighteen months later, uh, and. And basically it's a dead app walking. Is is
0: it dead app walking? (laughs) Is there any sense in having this on your phone now?
3: I mean, I think there is. It's funny. I was hovering over the the, the app the other night because I'd gotten one of those messages, and I was like, mm, "Do I even want to keep it on the phone? Should I get rid of it?" I thought, eh, "You know what? Let's keep it because a you know it's it doesn't cost me anything to have it or not, and you know so it's there. It's providing a certain level of visibility in that if if I do cross paths with someone who has tested positive and was diligent enough to tell the app that they tested positive, then. At the very least, I may get a notifications. You know, if I if I do encounter them in the Walmart, you know, store or something, and they stand too close to me for too long, uh, so I thought, you know, better to have it than not. But I'm under no illusion or no expectation that that will actually happen. I know of no one uh, who has gotten one of those notifications. I know that the numbers uh, across Canada for the last number of months have been incredibly minimal, like in the dozens. Um, so, like. I'm holding on to it, and I recommend that whoever has already downloaded it continue to hold on to it. But again, let's not think that this is some kind of magic bullet for most of us. It's just basically been out of sight, out of mind.
0: I remember earlier on in this pandemic when one of the emergency doc- or one of the, uh, doctors that we often see on TV said that, uh, you know, I walk through the hills or I walk through the halls of the COVID ward all the time, and mine's never gone
3: off. <laughs> so he's surrounded
0: in it. So, well, yeah, and- you have to...
3: I think that reinforces a very important component of an app like this is that it isn't, it isn't automatic. it depends on behaviors. And so we assume yeah. that at every step along the way, Canadians will do the right thing and that you know they will diligently pull the app up and diligently fill in their information and share. Uh, and I mean the truth of the matter is we're just not built that way. We don't use any other app in that capacity? Why would we expect an app that essentially has you know disappeared from day-to-day use? We don't even touch it day-to-day. So it's not on our personal radar. So to expect that we would be using it in that capacity, I think is, is a bit naive of us. And that's sort of betrayed by the numbers. Very few contacts, even in high transmission zones, simply because we're just not using it the way it was originally designed.
0: So, what is the future for this carmi? Will it eventually fall away by the way, fall by the wayside, or can you use this? Could they update it if there's Lord help us another uh, wave or something, and and it be reactivated and have a purpose?
3: I mean, I, certainly, the technology has a role in future pandemics, uh, and obviously, it'll continue to get better. The sensors will improve, the programming will get better, and you know, hopefully, governments will be a little bit more eyes wide open in terms of uh, building this not as a one-time big bang thing, but as a sustained thing um, that it becomes an ongoing conversation, not just a simple release and forget process. Uh, so, you know, I think it certainly uh, sets a foundation for for future events of this type. But I think as insofar as the, the the COVID-19 pandemic is concerned, I think its opportunity has come and gone. And I think we've proven to ourselves and, you know, proven to the rest of the country that it it may have helped a little bit, but we have no empirical data to suggest that that was the case. And I, I really don't think that this is going to serve any major purpose going forward. We learned our lessons. We've moved on.
0: Carmi Levy, tech analyst and journalist with us on the COVID Alert app. Uh, Carmi, thanks for the time. Be well. Really appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The 2022 Proof Strategies Can Trust Index found that uh, almost half of Ontarians feel increased stress. Uh, and anxiety uh, due to the pandemic you know we've talked about this a bit with various uh experts and such and you know normally at this time with considering that so many of us are vaccinated rather than celebrating this and moving on for some reason we're feeling even more anxious than we did in the first second and third waves of this and i guess no wonder when you see the divisiveness uh in the country that we're witnessing now let's bring in bruce mcclellan founding president and ceo of proof strategies and is with us now bruce Thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I
4: am well, Scott, and thank you for the invitation to join you. It's a pleasure to chat.
0: So, Bruce, how has how have our uh, our thoughts and our anxieties on this pandemic changed? Many thought that by the time we got to many thought before Christmas, but then after the holidays, uh, obviously, uh, uh, as we realized what Omicron was about, and more and more got it, and 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 you know, we slowly started to see. Uh, you know, things um, slowly, slowly plateau out. Uh, you'd thought that you'd think that people would be feeling a bit more optimistic. Are we are we more uh, anxious now than we were at the beginning stages of this? Well, I
4: think it's it's very clear from our research that the Omicron variant arrival was a big setback um, physically and mentally. Uh, people were just starting to feel like we could relax. We were getting vaccinated things were opening up and then, you know, lo and behold, a more infectious variant arrived and changed that. So it has contributed to to this sense of stress and anxiety. We we did our survey of of 1500 Canadians, just as Omicron was hitting, just as uh, new restrictions or old restrictions were being brought back. And um, what we found was 46% of Canadians say that they're still feeling more stress and anxiety as a result of the pandemic and that it hasn't gone away in the two year period. So this has been a tough, grueling time for Canadians. And not surprisingly, we're seeing it translate into levels of trust. The people who say they continue to feel stress and anxiety have lower levels of trust almost across the board compared to people who say they did feel stressed but have now started to feel better and are sort of back to their selves. And that's 30% of Canadians, which is great. Um, but we do have this almost half who are still feeling stress, and it's affecting their trust levels.
0: Uh, we we certainly have seen that a lot over the course of this pandemic. People questioning uh, medical officials, questioning um, uh, officials, whether it's politicians, people uh, in in leadership uh, in leadership positions and such. Uh, do we show any more signs of regaining that trust? And, and because it seems numbers are are going down.
4: Well, you know, our our trust story is is a very Canadian one. We look at regions, we look at institutions that are unique to Canada, and and, and population segments. And in some ways, it's it's you know it's the best of times and the worst of times. Um, we have seen a steady decline during the pandemic in trust in government as an institution, and I think that reflects that people are frustrated and and fed up, and they've seen restrictions come and go, and and politicians have to change their opinions on what they need to do, and it is a confusing time, and it's a, you know I would say it's a difficult time to be in government, too. I don't, I don't suggest it's been easy for any of our elected leaders. On the other hand, in the pandemic, we've seen a slight increase in trust um, by people who are employed in their own employer. Um, mm. In our survey, we asked people to give a, a letter grade, a, a, a score, a grade like you get in school, to their employer for their ability to build trust. And before the pandemic, people gave their employers a C. After the pandemic had been underway, that grade dropped to a D. And then uh, in our most recent survey done just you know weeks ago, they have moved back up to a C grade. So it does suggest that employers have learned something about how to take care of their people during the pandemic. We know that empathy and benevolence um, are a huge part of how you build trust with an audience. You, you treat people well, you show them care and and you take care of their interests and it will pay you back in terms of trust from those people. So it is a good sign that we've seen improved trust by employees in their employers. On the other hand, as I said, we've got declining trust in government and that's a problem.
0: And obviously with employers, uh, retention has become a problem. So they've recognized this.
4: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, among other things that have happened in the pandemic, there's a talent shortage and it's across almost the entire economy, whether people, you know, it's hospitality or, or manufacturing or professional services. Almost every business I talk to is experiencing labor shortages. So yes, employers are being forced by the market to be better at being employers. But that's a good thing. And it shouldn't just be when there's a shortage of labor that they do that. It should be permanent. And there's a lot that can be done by employers to build trust if they actually take the time to study it and understand how it works and how it's built and how you maintain it. One thing I always advise our clients is that, you know, trust is a team sport. The CEO must walk the talk and demonstrate uh, an activity that builds trust. And, and, you know, that includes clear communications. It includes living up to your words and, and delivering on your promises and delivering quality experiences to your employees and your customers. But it, it also requires the role of managers in an organization. So that's the team sport part of trust that everybody has a role to play in building trust inside an organization. Sometimes they need coaching, sometimes they need training and how to do it, but it can be done. Hmm. Um, Trust can be built when you have a deliberate game plan to do it. And more and more organizations need to do that because, you know, we're seeing some pretty weak trust scores for for private businesses as well as uh, the ones I've mentioned in
0: government. Bruce McClellan with us, founding president and CEO of Proof Strategies, talking about our heads in a global pandemic and specifically in regard to employment and how that pendulum may be swinging back. Bruce, thanks for the time. It's funny when uh, Canada ignores a problem for about a week and then it starts to be a big barn fire on their front door, Uh, then usually we look for someone to blame. And you know what it is? It's those damn Americans. That's what it is. Those damn Americans keep funneling fuel across that border, and that's just fanning the flames of what's going on in Ottawa. Uh, To get a U.S. perspective, let's bring in Brian J. Karam, political (laughs) analyst for CNN, White House reporter, host of Just Ask the Question podcast and author of the new book, Free the press the death of american journalism and how to revive it brian thanks for the time i hope you're well
5: uh doing well i haven't been caught in any you know like trucker convoys in a while so i'm okay
0: good for you all the noise (laughs) is happening up here for a change uh are the ottawa uh, and the border protests that are happening at windsor detroit border are they making any hay down there any noise
5: well no we're we're too busy uh uh, screaming at each other over uh the january 6th insurrection that um Mm the Republicans believe was legitimate political discourse. So that's taken that is take what's happening in Canada is taken a backseat to this nonsense here. And and of course a real issue in Europe with Ukraine and a potential for you know very large potential for armed conflict. So yeah it it's The United States is nothing if not uh, narcissistic. So we're more worried about um, January 6th and why it was such a peaceful, legitimate political discourse.
0: But we're hearing uh, noise that, you know, there's starting to be convoys assembled on that side of the border and uh, that, you know, you're doing your version of of what we're doing and that there's a a constant stream of money coming from the United States and the far right into Canada. Any news on that?
5: Yeah, that's well, look, it, the far right in the United States is nothing if not a a just a goon squad ready to happen at any given day. They're mm. well-funded, um and they're conspiracy-minded and they're convinced that the uh, aliens from the, you know, Andromeda galaxy dressed up as, liz- you know, lizards <laughs> who are dressed up as humans are uh, <laughs> drinking baby blood from the back of a a DC pizzeria in a from a basement that doesn't exist. So They've got nothing but time on their hands and apparently money and uh, have funneled it in a a number of places. And of course there are those who have, have tried to incite uh, some of the um, outpouring of of emotion in Canada. That's not unusual for them. That's what they do.
0: Uh, And have you heard anything uh, in regard to uh, this all started for us when uh, they said they decided that uh, the borders would be closed to any truckers who were not vaccinated. And I think yeah, you, love you it. Know, they said that 90, they said that 90% of the Canadian truckers are vaccinated. Anyway, there was lots of hay made here about that, even though uh, the U S government had done the same thing. So if you go one way, you can't come the other. Uh, yeah. Is there any chat in the U S about relaxing that mandate that says uh, truckers need to be vaccinated? Are, no, are, of course are, not. All,
6: all... <laughs> and And the irony of all this is,
5: we're screaming about our southern border, about, you know, we don't want to let these people that are not vaxxed into the United States because they're spreading the, you know, the uh, coronavirus that some people don't exist uh, and has a, um, a, <laughs> a vaccine created by a president who doesn't need it and says we shouldn't use it. And then we turn around, we get upset when uh, our northern neighbors are upset about, in essence, what are are a bunch of American truckers that aren't vaccinated. So it's, you know, the hypocrisy. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Tombstone, but there's a great line in there. My hypocrisy knows no bounds. And that's exactly what we have in the U.S.
0: So has this uh, the truckers uh, vaccine mandate, has it has it done anything to the supply chain there in any way?
5: What supply chain? we 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 screwed the pooch on that a long time ago. Um, <laughs> you know well, I, I was recently in Long Beach, California, and just watched out. You could see a train of of you know uh, sea cargo uh, ships, yeah, just coming in to uh, Los Angeles into the port. And those have been backed up for a while. The problem in uh, the supply chain in the United States, is is been exacerbated more than anything else by our own stupidity, and that's not going to change overnight because there are a
0: lot of people in the United States that really are stupid.
5: That's just the way <laughs> around it. <laughs>
0: It's interesting your perspective, Brian, after watching this spin around for the last two years, but I love it. Brian J. Karam with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, host of Just Ask the Question podcast and new book, uh, Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Brian, yes, as always, take everywhere. care. Everywhere. Be well, my friend. Take care. You too. All right, uh you know, we we've been asking this a lot and in and, and I'm not I'm not sure why we're not celebrating and doing handstands for having so much of our population vaccinated as opposed to and I'm fully vaccinated, everybody should be fully vaccinated, I agree, I've had it. <laughs> and come back to tell the story. Um, but but I really feel un-Canadian vilifying the last 10% who don't agree with me. And instead of getting to the point where we are now where everyone's moving on, Dr. Tam, Dr. Henry, Dr. Moore all says we should get we should move on with this. Uh, we're we're still we're still in the position that we are with the Prime Minister that we have to keep hammering away at this. So you've got to wonder what the goal is. Is the goal to get a hundred percent of us vaccinated i mean i've said from the beginning that's impossible Uh, there's always going to be five that can't and the other five that won't want to so what is the end goal here and isn't trying to get everybody vaccinated as wacky is saying nobody should be vaccinated let's bring in kieran odarty professor with the university of guelph expert in applied social psychology bioethics health psychology and genetic risk and it's with us now kieran thank you for the time i hope you're well yes thank you very much is it possible to get everybody vaccinated?
7: I, I, I don't think so. Uh, you know, I think for the the reasons that you mentioned, um, they'll. Well, let me put, let me change the answer. Yes, it is possible, but at what cost? You know, what? How are you going to achieve that? And what are the kind of consequences of whatever measures you take to try and get there?
0: Uh, do you? Is it not odd? Don't don't you think it's as unrealistic to have to try to get everybody uh, vaccinated as it is the other extreme saying that nobody should be putting this in their arms. I mean, it seems that each one is an extreme and there is not a solution there.
7: Well, I mean, we can, you know, we have, vaccination is a very successful strategy at, you know, risk management for diseases that, you know, Canada has been doing it for a very long time. Many other countries have been doing it. I, I don't think we've ever reached 100%, 100% right so no matter how no matter how good you th- you think it is or how no matter how good it actually is right um 100% is a is a like i mean you need you need to have specific targets right so with many diseases uh the target is uh, calculated by epidemiologists for what you need for herd immunity uh, and i don't think that that metric quite applies for covid vaccines um but you know, usually you have specific targets. Like 100%, it doesn't seem like a meaningful target to have. Uh, does, do we
0: need to change our our our, our uh, trajectory here? Do we need to change our tone here? Uh, we're starting to see provinces uh, slowly loosen up. Ontario announced as of January last month that they were starting to, the next phase is 10 days uh, for the next phase of opening up. Um the, but the prime minister keeps hammering away and, and not really changing the message. Is it time to change the
7: tone of this? Um, so you know from a public health perspective uh, which is you know different from a sort of like the, a political or a you know a leadership perspective from a public health perspective, I think we need to we need to look at what is the best possible health outcome, we can achieve. I I do think that that is, that that is the goal. Uh, But of course you have to, you know, in applied social psychology, we look at, you know, how do interventions work and then we evaluate them for their effectiveness. Right. So if, if something's not working, you need to, you need to look at that and look at why it's not working and, and change the approach to something else that can work. Is it time for a different approach? You know, possibly, Um, But I I think we need to also then look at where, you know, I mean, I don't know how uh, the Prime Minister makes his decisions, but certainly I do believe that he takes uh, advice from scientists and and public health experts, right? So where do we need a different approach? Is it necessarily with the Prime Minister? Is it with public health? I'm, I'm not sure.
0: Uh, uh, when we started down this journey, we had very little vaccine. We were a few months behind everybody else. So by the time mass vaccination did start in, in Canada by say spring, May or so June uh, there was short supply and huge demand. So Canada has always seemed really anxious and, and, and really eager to jump on board this. We have some of the highest vaccination rates, uh, in the country uh how much did supply and demand play into this in the in the sense that well everybody wanted it and nobody c- could get it so is that partially some of the reason for our, our high vaccination rates and are, are you surprised we're having this discussion in, in what we're having in canada now considering we have such high vaccination rates
7: yeah, no, I think you're very right, uh, Scott. We, we do have very high rates and, and I, I do think that's, you know, an important achievement. Um, you know, I'll tell you this, you know, we did a study um, in summer of um, uh, 2020. So before the vaccines were out, and we, we did an interview study where we spoke to people about what do you think about this vaccine that's on the horizon? You know, would you get it? Would you not get it? And one of the really interesting things we found was that a lot of people said, yeah, probably yes, but I don't want to be first in line to get it. Yeah. Quite a few people said that. And, uh, you know then when they became available available and especially in in uh, short supply, that's not what we found at all, right? Like there were people who just really jumped at it. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I can't say this for sure. we didn't you know we didn't test this or study this, but it, yes, I, I mean, we know that this is you know when something is in short supply, then you know, people are a lot more interested suddenly in getting it. So it, it's possible, yeah
0: kieran Darty uh, with us professor with university of guelph expert in applied social psychology bioethics and health psychology and genetic risk kieran we'll talk again thanks so much for your time be well thank you very much you're listening to the hamilton today podcast from 900 chml all right uh, let's bring in tim powers chairman summa strategies managing director of abacus data he's with us now tim thank you for the time i hope you're well Scott, you forgot the bouncy castles, man.
1: And you know what? When you were playing that clip of that gentleman I was thinking of, and you and I are of the same age, we remember, remember when – George Bush uh, Sr. invaded Panama and they had the blaring music to get Manuel Noriega then to come out. (laughs) Well, we've tried that, I guess, except the protesters tried on us. So I don't know if that's an approach that
0: could work. Oh, man. All right. Yeah. You know, peace through bouncy castles. There's got to be something there, (laughs) Tim. Come on. Uh, All right. Yesterday, we were all stunned when MP Joel Lightbound came out and said, uh, basically called the prime minister out for his divisiveness, saying this was all part of a strategy for the last election campaign campaign to pin the conservatives into a corner which of course worked uh now of course uh he he thinks it's time for him to change tone and uh you know it it seems that that the you know dr tam dr kieran moore dr bonnie henry saying to all move on and he keeps forging ahead uh trying to vilify the last 10 percent uh give your thoughts on what happened yesterday with this mp and is that damaging what does that do moving forward
1: Well, it's not helpful for the prime minister uh, in the midst of him calling for unity of purpose among all political parties and all Canadians to have one of his own MPs. Now, to be fair to both the prime minister and and Lightbould, they both said the protest should end. But the bigger point, I think, from all of that was, you know what, uh, prime minister, you're part of of the of the problem here that's clearly what he said yesterday um and i think that is true i think all of the politicians have been guilty of playing the politics of all of this but the prime minister's job is different he needs to be Uh, A leader now, not just a political leader. So, yeah, not helpful. I'm not sure it'll be uh, overly damaging in the long run. But as it relates to the immediate term and trying to resolve this issue and trying to take some steam out of the, the, the protesters, the occupiers who feel that they've got some wind in their sails, not good at all.
0: It seems that as we're slowly coming out of this and things are starting to settle down across the country in the sense that we're starting to see uh, more and more provinces start to open up. Ontario announced its first phase of opening last month and another one in 10 days coming up. So, you know, obviously things are starting to progress. We're learning to live with this. Does the prime minister need to change his tone? Because at the end of the day won't this all just peter out because it won't be needed anyway? Uh, I'm just surprised we're still fighting when we have such a high vaccine rate.
1: Yes, except there's a, there's an important political and precedential battle at the moment. And that being, all right, you don't, you, the, the, the prime minister doesn't want to be seen, and I agree with this, uh, to be caving to these protesters. Because he doesn't, to the point of precedent, want to create a precedent whereby every group that's got an issue will now come and occupy Ottawa. Isn't it, it too late for that, that, though,
0: Tim? Isn't it much, much too late for that?
1: Um, I don't know, Scott. I don't know. I think how you end this is important. Yeah. I think others can make the argument that you've achieved victory. but. and and Trudeau is not about to make any immediate changes now. I I think that this weekend is going to be telling, uh, because if all these officers do arrive, you can't imagine the eighteen hundred that have been asked for, they're going to be sitting here twiddling their thumbs. So you have to think that they're moving to bring an end to all of this. So uh, it's a tough one. I don't know if there's a the, – the, the answer for me certainly isn't, isn't equivocating on that point at the moment. But having you and I and others point out and say, well, look, you occupiers, Saskatchewan, Alberta, they brought them down. As you said, Ontario's bringing them down. Rules are changing in the, in the rest of Canada. Quebec's changing its rules. Yeah. It's happening. Maybe declare yourselves the victor without uh, causing any more turmoil. For the public, you're currently making life very difficult for those residents of Ottawa, myself included.
0: And in light of what you just said, you have to ask what the prime minister's end goal is, because we're 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 finding out what Dr. Tam and Dr. Kieran Moore and Dr. Bonnie Henry's end goals are. We're finding out what the premier's end goals are. Like, what is the prime minister's end goal here to get every single person vaccinated? Because yeah, that's, and that's a silly, not going
7: to happen. Th- well, we and not only
0: that. that, Tim. It's a silly and it, it, it's as bizarre as trying to think nobody should be vaccinated. It's just as wacky as the other extreme. What is the goal here?
1: Well, and just building off your point, I I, I don't know is the answer to the question. I, I not I I I, <laughs> I think he feels he's in a predict he the prime minister is in a difficult political predicament at the moment, and that he must hold the line for now. Uh, because he also will turn and point to the evidence, which is strong in Canada, to say that our significantly high vaccination rate has helped us beat COVID. He shouldn't be taking any victory laps either at the moment, but I've not seen any evidence that any of our governments really know, Scott, what their end goal are because COVID keeps throwing us curveballs.
0: Well, it seems everybody is trying to inch towards the end. He, sti- he, he seems to be keep fueling the fire. You, you know, and, and again, um, he, he keeps saying, and he did this during the emergency meeting, and he did, it, he did it yesterday as well, follow the science, follow the science. Well, Dr. Tam and all these other people are saying, hey, it's time to come with an exit strategy. A strategy. And instead of doing that, he's fighting with truckers. Like we don't, like the provinces are giving us an end game, but the prime minister's not leading the way. It seems as soon as the kitchen gets hot he gets out
1: well I, you know i'm not going to defend the prime minister but i want to correct something there he's not fighting with truckers he's fighting with the people yes, occupying yes, ottawa yes, and i think yeah, most yeah, truckers yeah, would yeah tell you that's not boxing. them yeah yeah, yeah right so that that that's a different thing uh yeah i i i don't know I, I i don't know why they're i know why they're stuck at the moment and i understand that but i'm not sure they have gamed this out to any degree of confidence for themselves. I don't know, Scott, if they're seeing modeling then we're not hearing about it that talks about another variant because as you say, Tam and Dr. Moore and everybody else are rightly saying we need to get out of this now. I don't know. I mean, Trudeau, the politics of this to Lightbound's comments are still on Trudeau's side. But the danger of him staying entrenched for too long beyond his entrenchment with the occupiers of Ottawa is that there is the audience is beginning to change. We are all frustrated. We do want some positive messaging. We do want to know that we can get out of this. Uh, so, uh, so that he needs to be thinking about that because you don't want to exacerbate or create, exacerbate this conflict or, or create a bigger conflict.
0: Tim Powers, chairman, Summa Strategies, managing director, Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thank you for the time. Be well, good luck. Take care, buddy. Bye. Now, of course, we have issues along the uh, border between Windsor and Detroit. Uh, the Ambassador Bridge, of course, and the mayor of Windsor, Drew Dilkins, is with us now. Mayor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well considering the situation.
2: Yeah, no, you know, everything, uh, everything is fine. It's a little frustrating, but uh, we're dealing with the situation that we have in front of us.
0: So what is the situation right now, Mayor? Uh, what is uh, traffic like across the bridge and border?
2: So traffic going from Canada to the United States, truck traffic can cross the border. That, that direction is open for trucks. It's the other direction from the United States into Canada that is fully blocked because of the uh, the illegal blockade at the Ambassador Bridge. And so police are, are trying to work with the folks on the ground, the protesters, uh, to develop a pathway where we can at least get a lane open in each direction that you know, allows the protest to happen, but uh, also allows the international commerce to continue.
0: So Canadian truckers are getting over to the States, but the, the U.S. truckers are not getting over into Canada. Is it the Canadian protest that's obviously starting stopping the inbound U.S.
2: lanes? Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. And so, you know, it, it may sound like it's a half of a half a low for a half a win uh, with that. But the reality is in in a in, at least in the city that I live in with just in time delivery you know, you have truck drivers who will cross the border several times each day doing deliveries from parts suppliers to vehicle manufacturers. And so if they can get over it, that's great. But if they can't get back, that just clogs up the whole system. And that's really what you're seeing play out here.
0: So what levels of government have you talked to here? Uh, and what is going on behind the scenes?
2: Well, I've, I've spoken with with everyone, (laughs) both Mm -hmm. levels of government and senior leaders in both levels of government. And everyone appreciates and understands the impact on the ground. And I think, you know, for perspective, it's worth, you you may say, what's the big deal? It's just a border crossing, it's a bridge. This is a big deal because it is the busiest commercial border crossing between the United States and Canada. We're talking eight to 10,000 trucks a day. We're talking almost $400 million of goods that cross that border each and every day. Uh, at this one location so it's 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 more than a quarter and less than a third of our international trade with the united states and any closure is is felt immediately and it certainly is uh it has a material impact not just on our local economy but on our national economy as well
0: are you surprised this has spread from ottawa to these federal border crossings
2: i i'm not because i i think you know if, if, if the folks weren't getting attention in ottawa Uh, This is certainly the type of location Mm. that will get attention because you will have all major employers uh, who rely on smooth and efficient border crossings, calling in their, their, uh, their chips with the premier and the prime minister and all of the senior ministers saying, you've got to find a solution to this. Uh, Uh, Obviously,
0: obviously, as you suggested, Mayor, the, you know, this started in Ottawa, what should, what should they do? What should we do to, to find a solution in Ottawa, it seems things are at a stalemate. What are your thoughts? How do we move forward?
2: Well, I, I, I'm not, I don't know, you know, from the Ottawa context and the protests there, I'd hate to speak about that, but at least what's happening on the ground here, we are going to need uh, some additional resource by way of additional police officers from either the provincial uh, and or federal governments. So we're going to need more support and boots on the ground in order to effect a change. Uh, and of course, we don't want anyone to get hurt. Police aren't looking to go in and, and, and you know pull out their, their pepper spray and you know, pepper spray people. That's not the objective here. It's to, to find a peaceful resolution uh, to this, this particular standoff. But we're also dealing with people here uh, who are uh, not entirely rational, I would say, uh, where mm-hmm. they're saying that this particular cause, uh, you have some who are saying this particular cause is one uh, for which they're willing to die
0: yeah you're getting uh, so you' getting some pretty can, ex- you're getting some pretty extreme views.
2: Yeah, so you can imagine that type of uh, rhetoric how that plays out on human behavior. Uh, and so we don't want anyone to get hurt that the objective is to have everyone, you know, you made your demonstration, thank you very much, but international commerce cannot be stopped because you want to make a protest uh, to the federal government.
0: How do you think this got so out of hand, Drew? How do you think we got to this point?
2: Well, you know, it's funny you ask that because the original protest was a group of truckers who said, I don't like the fact that the federal government implemented a uh, a vaccine mandate when we come back home. Uh, and so the message was clear. The group was, you know, at least defined as, as a group of truck drivers. Uh, and that really disappeared. A week later, the United States implemented the same mandate. So even if they got what they wanted yeah. uh, from Justin Trudeau, they weren't going to get it from Joe Biden and they couldn't cross into the United States. But what we see now is this is way more than a a fringe group of, you know, truckers who have that one message. In fact, this has become a leaderless group and I'm not entirely sure what the message is. It is way bigger than just, you know, not requiring someone to wear a mask uh, or have 10 people inside a restaurant. This is, this is uncoordinated. Uh, You have people here who just hate government, who hate, hate anyone telling them what to do. You have some (laughs) anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers, Uh, And you have people who don't even know why they're there. They're there because it's a cause (laughs) celeb and they want to be part of something and they feel like they're with some some element of a family uh, and they're not even sure why they're there. So it's it's a complex situation and what we don't want to see happen is, you know, flushing out 100 people only to have 300 more return two days later.
0: What's your message to the great people of Windsor?
2: Well, listen, they're frustrated and I'm frustrated with them. They just want us to go in and move these people out. Uh, and they're frustrated, you know, with the, with what they perceive as a lack of inaction. I can tell you there's lots of action going on behind the scenes. There's lots of tickets uh, that, that have been issued, uh, but recognize that there are still other, it's not GoFundMe, there are other FundMe sites that have been set up to help fund Uh, these types of operations, and there's money flowing from all over the world to help fund these types of protests. And so that makes it even more difficult when people are being, you know, they're almost professional protesters being paid uh, to sit in the street and protest this particular, uh, whatever it is they're protesting. So it's complex, but Windsorites, stick with us, Canadians, stick with us. We're working through the issues. All of the leaders are talking, uh, and there will have to be a resolution to this sooner rather than later, because this, this gateway is so vital for our national economy.
0: Drew Delkins with us, mayor of Windsor, talking about the disruptions along the Ambassador Bridge and the border between Windsor and Detroit. Mayor, as always, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with all this moving forward.
2: Thanks very much.
0: We were just talking to the mayor of Windsor, and uh, he concerned about the, uh, the the travel of goods across the border as it stands right now. They have one lane open. We just talked to him last hour. Uh, they have one lane open at the Ambassador Bridge that's going down into the U.S., but the bridge, uh, the traffic, the lane coming from the United States into Canada is blocked so that's where the issue is at this point he's hoping to get at least a lane going in each direction uh right now into can uh, from canada into the states they're not coming from the states into canada let's bring in ian lee associate professor sprott school of business carlton university ian are you surprised we are where we are right now
6: um no uh, i'm not um, uh, and i'll explain why um the over the last I don't know 10 15 20 years i've noticed and i've certainly talked about this before well both with my students and others the increasing um trend if we can call it that of uh, various uh, protesters all of interest groups social groups protesters i won't get hung up on the vocabulary to target Um, uh, infrastructure, and I'm using infrastructure in the old-fashioned word, not the modern rebranded version of, you know, daycare centers or something. I mean it in the original economic sense. Airports, roads, bridges, railroads. Because in a country like Canada, um, we're so large, and we're so small, spread over such large distances, infrastructure is even more critical to Canada than other countries on average, uh, because we're so dependent on it. This was not my insight. This was the great, famous, late Professor Harold Innes at the University of Toronto back in the 50s and 60s. He wrote many famous books about the critical. He said, you can't understand Canada without understanding the origins and development of transportation and communications. And uh, so uh, protesters and interest groups realized that Public opinion and governments and decision makers are really, really sensitive to this because these forms of infrastructure are so critical, critically important to not only decision makers, but to every one of us because we're so dependent on it.
0: How concerned are you that what's happening at the border with Detroit and Windsor will turn into something as permanent as what it is in Ottawa?
6: Um, I'm not, and I'm glad you asked me that, the question in that way. I want to sharply distinguish between the protests in Ottawa and and on the bridge, and people say, what are you talking about? There's no difference. There's a huge difference. I live about seven minutes from Wellington Street, Parliament Hill, where all those trucks are you see on television. That's how close I am to the downtown, and I've lived in Ottawa all my life. Um, Nobody could seriously argue that Wellington Street, which is only about a kilometer too long, is in a critically important street for the supply chain of goods and services in Canada. It just isn't. Yeah. Whereas the bridge is, it is uh, three hundred and a million million a day goes across that bridge, about 20% of the totality of all the goods and services. Um, and the second point, Scott, I really want to get this out of half-time very quickly. Uh, I did a paper, a really nice paper, uh, because it was evidence-based in 2015 after Harper, Prime Minister Harper, had legislated backstriking railroad workers uh, to work. And uh, there were all kinds of people saying, you know, Harper hates unions, and he's, why he, other governments didn't do it, why is he doing it? Well, I knew from my own memory that other governments had legislated back to work. So I went to the parliamentary library research branch. They're amazing people. I said, look, I wanna look at all the law, the legislation that legislated striking workers back to work in Canada. They looked it up from 1950 to 2015. 35 times the parliament of Canada legislated striking workers back to work in, but here's the kicker. It was not only conservative governments, liberal governments, majority governments, minority governments, but here was the thing that just leapt off the page, Scott. Every last time that they were legislated back to work, save and accept only once, all the other times, 34 to 35 times, they were all workers in guess what? Infrastructure, Mm -hmm. railroads on strike, ports on strike, the Pearson Airport on strike, the Port of Montreal on strike, the Port of Vancouver on strike. And so what I concluded from that was that in this country, there is a consensus that if anybody, for any reason, strike legal, strike illegal protest, if you shut down a critical piece of infrastructure called a port, called a railroad, called a a Pearson airport, that the government will step in very, very quickly because all of us are so dependent upon it. So therefore I predict and I have no inside information, It is based on this track record of 65, 70 years in our country that the government will step in very quickly to make sure that the Ambassador Bridge is open again, because that's what the record of national government decision-making for 75 years in our country says, whether it's a liberal, or a conservative government, majority government, or a minority government.
0: Fascinating. So that's the bridge. We don't predict something along there. What about day 13 in Ottawa? How does the prime minister get out of this? Where's the solution?
6: That's a very difficult situation, different situation. It's very difficult, and I'll, I'll explain why. Um, we got about a minute I here. In Ottawa- I've lived in Ottawa my life, Wellington Street, they protest there just about every day of the week. I mean, I was working on the Bank of Montreal, 144 Wellington Street, directly opposite the West Block of Parliament Hill in the 70s and 80s. My goodness me, especially in the summer, there was practically a protest a day. I mean, the the role of Wellington Street, aside from the street in front of the parliament buildings, I mean, that's where you go if you're gonna hear a protester. So there's been a long understanding that if you're a protester, that's where you go. I'm not suggesting that people have taken big trucks there before, but there is a very well understood, it's very well understood, that's where protesters go. And there's always been a hands off with the protesters as long as they don't, there's no violence. And as long as there's no uh, that kind of you know illegal behavior, and I mean it in the in the, firstly in the criminal sense, there's a less a fair attitude towards them. Now having said that, most protests don't last that long. And so to your question, and by the way, this is being discussed, as you can imagine in Ottawa behind closed doors and people I'm talking to right now, I just had a big long conversation with a bunch of people that live in the city in the downtown. I think there's two uh, two options, and one's very good and one's very bad. There's rumors flying around the city right now, they're gonna move Thursday night in the middle of the night and move in with force. Hmm. I desperately, desperately, desperately hope that that does not happen. Um, You know, Winston Churchill said, it's always far better to jaw jaw than to war war. When you war war, dead bodies arrive. And our country does not believe in governments killing citizens protesting. The Americans did it at Kent State because of the protesters against the Vietnam War in 1972, Mm -hmm. Neil Young turned it into a protest song called Ohio. And it was unbelievably negative to Richard Nixon's presidency. I hope he doesn't do that. Richard Nixon also did something else that was astonishing. People don't remember it anymore. In 1970, the Vietnam protesters were all over Washington, D.C. on the Lincoln Memorial. And for some reason, Nixon woke up in the middle of the night. He was all uh, um, you know and it twisted in a, in, a, in a knot over these protests and he decided to walk down in the middle of the night and start talking to the protesters and they were just gobsmacked here's the president walking around at two o'clock in the morning talking to 18 22 year old protesters but it changed the climate, it changed the temperature, it changed the, the attitude in the, in the protesters and they were actually impressed. I hope that Mr. Trudeau or some one of his senior people say, you know what, I'm gonna show real leadership. I'm not gonna send in the police or the army to beat them up and cause violence. I'm gonna walk down, yes, with my security detail, my RCMP protection, that's standard. And I'm gonna just walk down that street and talk to them. I'm not gonna negotiate a thing. I'm just going to walk down that street and show, A, I'm not afraid to walk down that street, and B, I'm going to talk to them.
4: No, mm. Nothing else.
6: No promises. No nothing. I'm just going to talk to them. It's the Canadian way. You
0: know. Ian Lee with us. i got to cut you off right there, Ian, and that's great advice. I've been saying all along, man, this is about communication. Ian Lee, Associate yes. Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. As always, Ian, thanks so much for the time. You're listening to the Hamilton Today Podcast from 900 CHML. All right, considering where we are in this pandemic, uh, and yes, we've been in it for two years. And, I, you know, you think about it, I remember it was March break with the kids. Uh, my kids were home Monday and Tuesday. I was home by Wednesday, and the rest is history, as they say. And we remember and we know what it was like going through the first wave, the second wave, the third wave. That seems like 100 years ago now. Uh, but here we are, and and we had a, a you know a setback with Omicron at Christmas time. I thought I think people were really looking forward to getting out. I know we're at the tree of hope at the beginning of December, and it was like yeah, this is great. And then within a week, everything changed, and in back in we went. And then as we learned more with Omicron, um, obviously highly transmissible, but not as dangerous. And then slowly things are starting to open open up again. We're seeing uh, Ontario as of uh, the end of last month uh, starting to open up things. We'll see that in another 10 days or so. Other provinces are doing the same, but it appears our mental health is worse now than it was in the earlier stages of this pandemic. Is it just we're at the end of our rope or are we more anxious at this stage than we were before? Let's bring in Sue Phipps, Chief Executive Officer, Canadian Mental Health Association, Hamilton, and is with us now. Sue, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
8: I am well. Thank you so much for having me today. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So is it worse now than say it was at the beginning of this?
8: You know, it, it does appear um, that, uh, you know, people's mental health in Ontario has worsened uh, since the outbreak began. It's up uh, from 36% to nearly half, 48% of Ontarians are saying that their mental health has worsened. And so, um, you know, CMHA Ontario did this uh poll uh, which was conducted uh, from January 10th to 17th and there were you know this is the fourth poll actually that's been done so we've been comparing how people have been doing um, in the public and, and how the pandemic has impacted their mental health so we are seeing that it is worsening at this stage.
0: How do you explain it? Is it the setback that we had at Christmas? Because like I said, even at the beginning of December, it looked like it was all systems ago. And then boom, uh, a week or two before Christmas, uh, Omicron hit. How much did that play into this?
8: You know, I think like mental health for people, generally speaking, has its ups and downs. Of course, it's on a continuum. And, you know, we know that through different points of the pandemic, people were feeling better. And I think it does have to do with these uncertainties and and the fact that, you know, people like to set goals and, and move forward in their lives and have things to look forward to. And, you know, suddenly when, you know, you don't have a certainty about your future and, you know, some of those goals are unattainable and the things that you've been looking forward to are suddenly not possible. I think that has a huge impact on your mental health. And certainly we know, you know, some of our more vulnerable who are, who are isolated and living alone, our seniors population, for example, that social isolation has a huge impact. And when restrictions are imposed yet again, you know, they fall back into, you know, feeling very lonely and isolated and disconnected. And that has a huge, huge impact as well. We know, you know, with our our parents of children who have, you know, had to have schools shut down during Omicron, this also has had, you know, in their opinion, a huge impact on their children's mental health as well. Um, you know, where children are just feeling more uncertain about the future and and their kids are not going to school and not doing those extracurricular activities. And that's really taken a toll on kids. So I think we're seeing lots of different things happening. The other thing too we're seeing is that, um, you know, a quarter of uh, Ontarians are, you know, are now Seeking mental health supports, Mm. Um, however, I think, you know, perhaps their needs are more complex than what they realize, and so they may not be getting the level of support that they need. And we know that our resources are very stretched. They were pre-pandemic, particularly community organizations like, like ours, Comedian Mental Health Association you know we just do not have the resources to meet the demand and so access to mental health care supports is a challenge it will continue to be a challenge so there's many factors playing into this Substances are you surprised as well.
0: are you surprised sue with some at this stage and again we just talked about the setback at during the holidays obviously with omicron um but now it seems we're rising above that we have so many uh canadians ontarians vaccinated we're have some of the best vaccination numbers in the world. Are you surprised with that, that we're still feeling like this?
8: I think, you know, it's been, it's been a long, long haul of ups Mm -hmm. and downs and I think people are exhausted, right? The fatigue is, is extreme and, and just, you know, what people have had in their lives previously to keep them well, they're not able to access right now. And I, you know, I know that the numbers are are coming down, which is really good news, but we're not out of the woods yet. There's still incredible strain on the healthcare system. And, uh, and I think, you know, all of those things have come together, um, you know, and, and we hear it in the news too. just How polarized people are with some of these things that, uh, you know, have been put in place in order to keep us safe and, you know, some people agree and some people don't and that creates conflict and strain in our personal lives as well as within the workplaces and so I think there's many, many contributing factors that are sustaining this level of, of stress and anxiety and depression that we're seeing.
0: That was my next question, Sue. How concerned are you about the divisiveness? We're very angry now. Uh, People are angry. I mean, this is creating situations in households, workplaces, whatever. People are, it's divided. People are upset.
8: People are upset. And I think, you know, when we are, as humans, when we're under sort of chronic conditions of stress, our minds, you know, begin to just naturally uh, think in extreme ways and and Mm. polarize, right? And, And so, you know, this, this anger is, I think, really a result of this chronic stress reaction. And so I think we have to be particularly empathetic and kind to people's viewpoints because people are under a great deal of sustained stress. And, and it's been over such a prolonged period of time. And, and that really does impact the way we think and the way we problem solve and our ability to see the points of view of others. And, and so, you know, I think, you know, some of the work that I've done in, in my lifetime as a mental health professional has been around trauma and, uh, you know, supporting individuals who have experienced trauma in their lives. And, and we see anger as being a big part of that picture oftentimes. And I think that's what we're seeing now. I think it's, it can be, you know, kind of, you know, comparable to that.
0: Hmm. Sue Phipps with us, CEO, Chief Executive Officer of Canadian Mental Health Association, Hamilton. Sue, thanks for the insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
8: Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate being on the show.
0: The Health Minister, Christine Elliott, news conference today and telling us that Ontario will continue along with its reopening schedule, which, of course, already started last month. Uh, Restaurants and gyms opening up to 50% capacity uh, at the end of, uh, beginning of February, end of January. And I believe we're 10 days away from the next stage. And then hopefully by March uh, 14th, uh the rest of it uh so uh the health minister has announced that 2300 pharmacies and grocery stores will have free rapid tests for you uh and hopefully with 5.5 million uh each week being distributed uh, hopefully they don't end up on um you know, on the internet for sale. So uh, this is as part uh, of the reopening as we move forward and to talk more about it, Thomas Tenke, professor of School of Occupational and Public Health with Ryerson University and with us now. Thomas, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
9: Uh, Yes, thanks, Scott. Great to be with you.
0: So what do you think about uh, your thoughts, uh, these tests, why they're coming now?
9: Yeah, I, I think, you know, what I'm sort of seeing is that the, you know, the government is, is trying to sort of build in extra layers to to ensure that the uh the reopening schedule you know keeps on track uh and so you know one way to do that is to try and uh you know have you know make the te- these tests more available so people do use them uh you know have access to them and can use them and you know in, the, in that way uh if so, if people are a little bit worried that they might might have it then then they can take you know take the test and and really confirm it versus, uh, you know, not not have it available and then potentially, you know, spread it to, uh, you know, loved ones or, or people who are uh, more at risk.
0: Uh, you bring up a good point here, Tom. And, you know, uh, most of us are vaccinated, fully vaccinated. Some of us have even had it. So who would test? Who, uh, if there's these tests and we're getting them, when should you take the test?
9: Yeah, so so I think that, you know, there one of the things even though you know people are vaccinated and even if you have had COVID, it still doesn't mean it still means that you can be infected and you could pass it on to someone. And so so you know whether or not you're symptomatic or not. And so uh you know what we're what this is sort of saying is that you know particularly when you're going into situations where you might be having contact uh, with people who at who are are at higher risk, people who more may be more vulnerable, you know, people who have uh, you know elderly or or have uh, you know uh, compromised immune systems or you know or under various underlying health conditions, you know, you know, in situations where you might want to be you know in contact with them and, and and maybe and particularly you know in an indoor environment, then uh, you know it, it would be good to you know take a rapid test. Before you go and see them, just so that you can, you know, have more confidence that you're, you know, you're you're not potentially uh, passing on an infection to them. So, so I think it's just a, you know, it's an added uh, measure that that I think is a, you know, an additional safety precaution to try and manage uh, individual people's risks, risk as well as the risk that people might pose to other people.
0: Uh, we're starting to see uh, other provinces open up. Some of them a little bit more uh, obviously aggressive than than Ontario is. The health minister said today. Uh, again, we'd already started opening up at the end of of January. Uh, that last twenty one days each stage. So the next one, uh, February twenty first. Your thoughts on some of the other provinces opening up a little earlier? Should we be going faster, slower? What are your thoughts?
9: Yeah, but it definitely it has to be a you know sort of a a province by province and geographic location specific, uh, approach. I think, you know, say in Ontario, if you think back to what's happened in the past, I think, you know, that I think the government sort of feels a little bit, uh, cautious now of, of, you know, maybe, you know, previously they've opened up a bit quickly and yeah. so they, they don't want to do that again. And so, so, you know, I think, you know, the, at this stage, the timeline that they've got is, is, is seems fair to me based on where we're, where we're going with, uh, with the you know hospital numbers you know the numbers in hospital uh related to covid are, are still you know reasonably high but you know they're on a on a slow decrease so so that's good so there's you know a lot of a lot of the trajectory is good but we don't want to sort of open up too quickly and uh you know sort of have the floodgates open again so so I think you know sort of taking a cautious approach and and, and adding this additional layer that that gives people more confidence in in their ability to go and connect with others i think is a good is a good idea
0: thomas Kate with us professor school of occupational and public health with ryerson talking about uh 2300 uh pharmacies and grocery stores going to get free rapid tests about 5.5 million each week as we slowly uh continue with our reopening thomas as always thanks for the time be well
9: uh thanks very much scott have a great evening
0: Let's bring in Peter Grave, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, as always, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, um, thanks. Uh, another MP has come out and uh, talked about a different strategy. Uh, obviously, this strategy uh, was uh, developed during uh, the election campaign in order to uh, to push the Conservatives into a corner, and it certainly did that. Uh, your thoughts of a of a of a second MP coming out?
10: Oh, I mean, it's uh, refreshing to see MPs actually asking questions of the government in place. Uh, you know, we haven't seen that in a very long time. Uh, I you know. I think it also then points to you know the, what we haven't seen from uh, Trudeau is uh, you know really uh, good justifications for you know some of the decisions as we go forward. So uh, you know, again, the uh, the MPs seem to be pushing in the direction that suddenly we should you know just be opening up. Um, You know, which is interesting at a moment where we've got 50 to 60 deaths a day here in Ontario uh, related to COVID. So, uh, but, you know, to the the deeper point of saying, well, at this stage, as we move from a pandemic to an endemic, uh, we maybe expect a bit more in terms of leadership from the prime minister in terms of justifying, you know, the measures in place, but also uh, providing a roadmap of how we can live with this virus in a more endemic setting. And so in those ways, I think, you know, they do usefully Uh, In some ways, do the work that we might have expected the Conservatives to do at the end of the day, Uh, you know, of really asking the questions of, well, what would be a responsible approach in this moment, you know, given the lack of of Trudeau really uh, pointing that way.
0: Uh, Obviously, we know what's going on with the protests and such, but as well, uh, we're slowly moving out of this. I mean, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, Dr. Kieran Moore had said it two weeks ago. Dr. Tam said it this week that it's time to move on. Yet in the emergency debate the other night, uh, Trudeau still is hammering the same point home that he's trying to get everybody vaccinated and he's got to follow the science. Um, but we're not sure what science he's following when Tam and Henry and, and Moore all say it's time to change direction. Nobody's saying throw the doors open and run out naked into the daisies. This is going to be a gradual thing. Ontario has already started theirs last month. Um, but it seems he has a, a different message than the rest of the country. Is that accurate? Yeah, I'm not
10: sure really if there's, you know, uh, there's a different message. I guess the question is whether behind that message there's actually a strategy. You know, I mean, in all cases, we do have to, you know, if, if it's posed simply as a question of personal liberty or of these things getting in the way of certain economic activity, we really don't actually have the debate about, uh, or, or the discussion maybe more than a debate about, well, how do we live with this? What sort of changes in the way we organize our spaces and our interactions uh, can we adopt so that we uh, don't have, you know, with a new variant, the rapid spread that puts our, you know, emergency uh, departments in trouble and so on? and certainly, you know, Trudeau hasn't been uh, pointing in that direction. I think what these public health figures are asking us to do is is to to talk about that, and so, yeah, certainly a Prime Minister who just wants to sort of hector people about vaccination, and certainly vaccination will be an important part of any strategy coming forward, and, you know, vaccine passports might also be part of that if, you know, people who are vaccinated want the confidence to go out in, in spaces, uh, you know, with less worry about uh, contracting uh, the disease and so on. Again, it depends on What happens with future variant?
0: It seems that we we don't really know.
10: Something different than Delta.
0: It seems we don't really know what the goal is at this point. Like, it seems the provinces are trying to come up with a way to move out of this and slowly reduce restrictions and such. But uh, it seems that the goal of the prime minister is to get, like, everybody vaccinated. And we all know getting 100% of the population vaccinated is, is, is pretty difficult and almost as extreme as saying that nobody should be vaccinated. So why do you think he keeps selling that message as opposed to one of hope and moving out i mean how many more people can we get vaccinated i think uh, the last figures i got were sitting at 83 percent fully vaccinated five plus china's only up to 80 or china's at 86 percent how much better can we do here
10: well i mean i think from a public health perspective you're always pushing further because you know again you know, I, I think we even though it's killing like-
0: everybody. I mean, look at what's look at the state of the country. I mean, we've got some of the absolute best vaccination numbers in the world, yet we're divisive. We're fighting. It's bizarre.
10: Yeah, but we also, you know, had a, a massive hiccup a month ago because, you know, 50 percent of the people in the ICU were, were unvaccinated. And so, uh, you know, in a situation like that, if the plan is to say, you know, this virus is out there and we know that the more interactions we have, right, the more vulnerable we are. So, you know, what are our strategies in terms of how we plan spaces, how we do ventilation, uh, you know, how we use vaccines, uh, you know, and certainly more vaccination uh, is going to have to be part of, of that plan. But I mean, I think what you're pointing to is probably correct as well, that Trudeau just hammers on about this, but it's not about what do we have to do differently and how do we make it happen. And so, you know, one interesting thing about the the letter was to say, well, when are we having this conversation about uh, the federal health transfers to provinces? Which yeah. Trudeau says once we're out of the pandemic. But actually part of the, you know, strategy of exit is how do we rebuild our health systems? And that's going to take presumably some investment, which, you know, the provinces are looking for the federal government to do. Uh, you know, and similarly, I think our provincial health authorities you know, the, the story is really, well, what's the plan for reopening, which in the past has always just been about, well, when do we get rid of masks? And when do we get rid of vaccine requirements? But part of it too has to be actually, when do we do investments in things, uh, you know, to make uh, places where we congregate safer? What are we doing that's going to be better in schools? Uh, maybe we actually want to keep masking in some places, because it's going to reduce, you know, the chance of spread. So that kind of story uh, about what do we have to do differently rather than how are we going to go back to February 2020? Uh, You know, something I think we have to hear from both federal and provincial governments.
0: Uh, And you bring up a valid point about the healthcare system and the funding formula, because even if we get hundred percent of the Canadians, of Canadians vaccinated, it's still not going to help our healthcare system uh, in its neglect over the years. Peter Graff with us, professor of political science, McMaster university. As always, Peter, thank you for the time. Be well. And you too.